Good morning. As you can tell, Pastor Brendan is sick, and I will be given the message this morning, and hopefully it'll be a good one. I think we would all agree that truth is important. Without knowledge of the truth, we don't have a direction in life. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14 says, Without truth, we are tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. If truth were a tangible commodity, it would be priceless. In Proverbs chapter 23, verse 23, Solomon tells us to buy truth and do not sell it. And that attests to the fact that truth is a very precious commodity in scriptures. Psalm 31, verse 5, and Isaiah chapter 65, verse 16, both say that God is the God of truth, having magnified his word, which is truth. John chapter 1, verse 14, tells us that our Lord Jesus Christ, who is God in human flesh, is full of grace and truth, being himself the way and the truth and the life. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth who seals the salvation of those who embrace the message of truth. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 says, The church is the pillar and support of the truth. And Colossians chapter 1, verse 5 basically says that the church is the protector and proclaimer of the truth. <clears throat> In fact, John chapter 8, 32 says, It is by believing the truth that people are set free from sin and death. And so we see how important truth is and how adamant Scripture is about knowing it and following it. Sometimes God's people forget the importance of truth, but Satan never does. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, the father of lies has done everything in his power to destroy and to hide and to twist the truth, constantly attempting to replace it with falsehood and deception. Ironically, his deadliest attacks do not come from those who openly reject the truth, but rather from those who profess to know and believe it, but then lie. Satan's most effective agents are like spiritual terrorists, secretly infiltrating the church and passing themselves off as genuine shepherds and leaders. In reality, however, they are imposters and defectors, apostates, who claim to know Jesus, but in fact reject him. With their speech, they affirm their knowledge of his word, but their actions indicate that they are actually enemies of the truth. Romans chapter 16, 18 tells us, For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by smooth words and flattering speech deceive the hearts of the simple. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 5, They are useless wranglings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth. The New Testament repeatedly warns of the danger that apostate false teachers pose to the church. Both Jesus in Matthew 7, 15 and Paul in Acts 20, 29 compared their deceptive savagery to the attacks of vicious wolves. 
Jesus warned us in Matthew 24, 11, many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And Paul cautioned in 1 Timothy 4, 1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Peter and John also warned of these spiritual pretenders, and so did Jude in his brief one-chapter epistle, which is unmatched in the way it denounces immoral apostates and still is able to display affectionate concern for true believers. Jude denounces false teachers whose errors pollute the purity of the faith and insists that the revelation of God in Christ cannot be compromised. Jude's concise letter is a forceful condemnation of the false teachers who were infiltrating the church in his day and by extension, all who are yet to come. In our postmodern culture, in which truth is considered relative and tolerance is prized above all else, and a growing number of people are willing to consider all religious systems as having some validity, many people suppose that this epistle has lost its relevance for today. But Jude's eloquent plea for doctrinal purity is needed more now than it ever has been. Thomas R. Schreiner writes in his commentary on Jude, and I quote, Jude's message is judgment of judgment is especially relevant to people today, for our churches are prone to sentimentality, suffer from moral breakdown, and too often fail to pronounce a definitive word of judgment because of an inadequate definition of love. Jude's letter reminds us that errant teaching and dissolute live living have dire consequences, end quote. There was <clears throat> and is, uh, however, some discrepancy as the, to the authenticity of Jude's epistle. That point of concern comes from the fact that Jude quotes from Apocrypha, a collection of Jewish writings that were considered historical but were not included in the biblical canon. That Jude quotes from a source other than scripture does not affect the accuracy of the epistle. It's very apparent that Jude was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and there would be nothing in there that was not inspired by him. So we can be confident in knowing that when we read Jude's letter, we are reading the Word of God. In fact, failure to heed Jude's message will result in compromising the very faith which was handed down to the saints, as verse 3 in the epistle tells us. As I stated earlier, the greatest threat to the church, without question, has always been false teaching. Its subtlety and severity make it a spiritual poison unlike any other, while external threats, such as religious persecution and the world's animosity, are certainly unpleasant. The wounds they inflict are only physical, and the injuries they cause are only temporary. On the other hand, the deadliest false teaching comes not from deceptive, non-Christian religions outside the church, but from spiritual pretenders inside the church. And the resulting damage is far greater than that caused by any external assault. The casualties are spiritual and the consequences are eternal. It's so important that we recognize false teachers when we are confronted with them. It's no wonder then that Jesus warned his followers about the deadly dangers of apostasy. 
So would you turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Matthew 7, and we'll look at uh, verses 15 through 20. Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Here Jesus tells us we will know apostate teachers by their fruits. We will know false teachers by the ungodly lives they are living. And as we will see in Jude's epistle, he will describe those lifestyles very clearly. Much of the New Testament records similar warnings, instructing believers to guard themselves against the deceptive nature of false teaching disguised as Christian truth. And those warnings were well-founded by the end of the first century when the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation, only two of the seven churches he addressed, Smyrna and Philadelphia, remained completely faithful. The other five churches, to one degree or another, had fallen prey to doctrinal error which had seeped in and the immorality it had brought. Although Jude's letter was written about 25 years before Revelation, he still recognized that the battle for truth in the church had already begun. Jude devoted his entire letter to the presence of apostate false teachers. He wanted his readers to stand strong against the spiritual deceptions that threatened to wreak havoc in their fellowships, and he also wanted all those who brought in these errors in the church to be exposed and expelled. The book of Jude is the last of the New Testament epistles and serves as an entry point to the book of Revelation. In Jude, false teachers are examined, their motives uncovered, and their doom predicted. In Revelation, that inevitable destruction is told to us in detail as Christ's future victory ultimately eliminates false teaching and establishes truth forever. Jude wrote this letter around A.D. 68 to 70, not long after Peter finished his second epistle. The two letters are closely related, each having several nearly identical descriptions of false teachers and apostasy. In fact, Jude could likely be a sequel to 2 Peter, maybe even written to the same group of Christians to tell them that what Peter had said was coming was now there. 2 Peter 2 and 3 uses future tenses in its reference to false teachers. Jude wrote in the present tense. As he began his letter, setting the stage in the first three verses, he revealed his background, his audience, and his exhortation. So with that, let's go to the book of Jude. It's sandwiched right between the third letter of John and Revelation, and we will be looking at verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> 
Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only, God, the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their proper dom domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, in a similar manner to these, have given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So starting with <clears throat> verse 1, uh, the first half of verse 1, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. It was common for the writers of the New Testament epistles to identify themselves first before revealing the subject of their letter. The author of this epistle identifies himself as Jude, the bondservant of Jesus and brother of James. By Jude designating himself as bondservant, he revealed himself as rendering absolute selfless submission to Jesus as his Lord. In this letter, that identification is especially fitting because it sets Jude in sharp contrast to the apostates he would be warning his readers about. He was a grateful, willing slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, whereas the apostates denied Christ's lordship through their obvious sinful lifestyles. <clears throat> the New Testament lists eight men named Judas. The name Jude is an English form of the Greek name Judas, which translates the Hebrew name Judah. That name was extremely popular, both because of Judah, the founder of the tribe of Judah, and because of Judas, the hero of the Maccabean revolt against the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century BC. Of the eight men mentioned in the New Testament with the name of Judas, two were apostles and one was the half-brother of our Lord. Only one of the three could be seriously considered as the author of this epistle. We can immediately rule out Judas Iscariot, the uh, betrayer of Jesus, and it is highly unlikely that the author would be Jude, the other, other apostle, because both Luke 6.16 and Acts 1.13 state that this Jude was the son of James, not the brother. So that leaves only Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, and the brother of James. Matthew 13.55 says, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? We see here that Jesus had at least four brothers, and from the position of Jude's name, he was apparently the youngest of the brothers. 
The James that Jude claims as his brother in verse 1 is the same James that wrote the epistle of James, and he was the same James mentioned as one of the pillars of the church and the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Jude's reference to his famous brother would immediately establish his identity and bolster his own message. But like his other brothers, including James, Jude did not believe in the deity and the messiahship of Jesus until after the resurrection. John 7, 5 says, For even his brothers did not believe in him. And then Acts 1.14 says that the mother of Jesus and his brothers were in the upper room waiting for the Holy Spirit. So clearly, sometime after the resurrection of Jesus, there was a rebirth experience among his brothers. After the resurrection, Jesus' relationships with his siblings changed from brother to Lord and Messiah. That Jude, like his brother James, did not allude to his physical relationship with Jesus is explained by the fact that the ascension of Jesus had altered all of Christ's human relationships and his, his brothers would naturally shy away from claiming any family kinship after the flesh with his glorified body. But Jude and James took it to heart, the fact that according to Luke 11:27 and 28, Jesus himself taught that the lowliest of true Christians would rise above any of the closest earthly relationships Jesus had. They knew that to be spiritually the bondservant of Jesus Christ was much more than being his actual brother. There is little known about Jude apart from this epistle. According to 1 Corinthians 9.5, he was married and had an itinerant ministry as an evangelist. Church history relates the story of how in the second century, Jude's two grandsons were brought before the Roman emperor Domitian. The emperor questioned their loyalty because they were descendants of the Davidic royal line. But when he learned that they were simple farmers and the kingdom of Christ they were accused of expecting was not an earthly kingdom and that it would appear at the end of the world, Domitian dismissed them with much disdain and scorn. Afterwards, these men were honored as witnesses of Christ and relatives of the Lord. So even with such little information about Jude, we can still get a glimpse of his character. D. Edmund Hebert states in his commentary, and I quote, This brief letter of Jude offers the only available material for an evaluation of the man and his character. The epistle shows that he was a man of clear perception, vivid imagination, intense sensibility, and strong will. He was a man of profound convictions, gave forceful expression to his thoughts, and had the courage to contend for what he knew was right. His love for the truth of God and the souls of men compelled him to speak out in fiery condemnation against the deceptive intruders. But when addressing the brethren, whom he thrice calls beloved, he reveals glimpses of a warm and affectionate nature. He has a personal concern for those ensnared in the evils he is combating, and he counsels a compassionate and saving attitude toward them." End quote. So now we know the author of this epistle a little better. Now let's find out who, who it was written to. Jude carefully describes the letters of the, the recipients of his letters in the second half of verse 1. It says, to those who are called 
sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the, the recipients are not identified by their geographical location or ethnical background. Their identification is solely in terms of their spiritual life. Jude designates them as those who are called, which included all true believers without distinction. Called is the main word in this sentence. It comes from the Greek word kletos, which conveys the idea of being personally chosen and selected. God has called believers to himself. He, had, he has chosen them as his children. This is an effective calling because it overcomes all our resistance we have towards God and brings believers to faith. Jude here is not speaking about God's general invitation to all sinners. Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, for many are called, but few are chosen, which is a call that often goes unheeded and rejected. Let's uh, turn to the book of Acts, and let's look at chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And we'll see about the general call. Acts 4, verses 13 through 18. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. <clears throat> but when they had commended, commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. This is a perfect example of the general invitation every sinner gets. The Pharisees marveled at how bold and outspoken Peter and John were, and they knew they were uneducated, but they also knew they had been with Jesus, and they had proof of a miracle standing right in front of them in the man that was healed. These were intelligent men who should have been able to put two and two together, but their hearts were hardened, and they rejected the call. The call Jude is speaking of is God's special internal call through which he awakens will and gives spiritual life which enables once dead sinners to embrace the gospel of faith. Jesus tells us in John 6:44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up in the last day. Paul also referred to the effectual call of believers. 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9 say this, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. In his sovereign wisdom, God chose believers based solely on the gracious purpose in Christ from before time began. 
His call was not based on anything he saw in them, not even their foreseen faith. Rather, his call was motivated by his own glory and his good pleasure, that his mercy might be eternally put on display. Paul tells us in Romans 9, 22 and 23, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even to us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of Gentiles. So when Jude says in verse 1, to those who are called, he is effectively saying to those who are divinely elected to salvation. They did not earn God's choice, nor can they lose it or have it taken away. For those reasons, they can rest in the security of God's gracious call, even in the most dangerous conflict with false teaching. The next adjective Jude uses to describe his readers is sanctified by God the Father. The better rendering that of that is beloved in God the Father and was probably the original intent, but each one is useful and actually support each other. Sanctification in this case is not the unearned sanctification that is ascribed to the Holy Spirit and is the force behind spiritual growth, but it is the act of eternal election by God the Father where he sets apart believers from the world for his own use. Why would God, who doesn't need anything or anyone, set aside believers? Well, the other rendering of the passage to those who are called beloved in God the Father gives us a better understanding of why. God chose to save believers because he loved them. It's a love based totally on his sovereign pleasure and for the reasons beyond human comprehension. Let's, let's turn in our Bibles again to uh, 1 Corinthians and let's look at chapter 1, 26 through 29. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. For you see your calling, brother, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. You see, believers look foolish to the world. So we see that the Father purposed to set his love on certain sinners and redeem them, even when they were rebels. He chose them to be his children, and the beneficiaries of Christ's death. Just as Paul tells us in, in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The word beloved comes from the Greek word agapeo, which indicates that God placed his love on believers in eternity past with results that continue in the presence and into the future. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, 
according to the good pleasure of his will. Out of his uninfluenced and selective love, the Father determined who would believe from before the foundation of the world. That love required that he also give his son to die on the cross in their place, paying the penalty for their sin. And out of his love, he sent the Holy Spirit to convict them of sin, draw them to saving faith, and regenerate their sinful hearts. And it is out of this love that God continues to secure and protect his children, promising a relationship with him that will last for all eternity. Although believers did nothing to gain his love, and in fact did everything to invite his wrath, the Father loves redeemed sinners with the same love that he has for his Son. It is a love that is infinite, eternal, and completely secure. The Apostle John wrote in his Gospel, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, which means to perfection as well as forever. In fact, according to Romans 8, 38 and 39, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And now we come to the third and final description of Jude's readers. The New King James Version records it as preserved in Jesus Christ. Some of the better versions render it kept for Jesus Christ. The Greek word for kept for is tetramenois, which means to observe, pay attention to, keep under guard, or maintain. But the way the sentence is structured, kept by, might be closer to what Jude is saying. In that way, Jude's phrase echoes Jesus' own teaching on the preservation of believers. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 27 through 30, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Jesus Christ has promised to keep believers secure for all eternity, a guarantee that is made possible by his death on the cross. Through his sacrifice, Jesus gives believers forgiveness of sins, the reality of eternal life, and the hope of glorification. Furthermore, what Christ secured at the cross, the Father protects through his power. There is no person or power in the universe that is greater than God nor is there any force that could break his loving grip he has on his own children. As a result, believers can rest in him, knowing that their eternal safekeeping is in his all-powerful hand. Already in this verse, this first verse of the epistle, Jude is giving his readers much encouragement by telling them that they are kept by Jesus Christ. This is steady ground to stand on, which believers may fearlessly fight against false teachers. The ones who believe that salvation can be lost, however, would and should be reluctant to engage the deadly error of false teachers at close quarters. Jude began his letter by removing that needless fear, believers are kept. 
Now we come to verse 2. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. The salvation God provides for his children is one that is rich with blessings, three of which Jude lists in his greeting. Jude takes the phrase mercy and peace, a common Jewish greeting, and adds love to remind his readers of Christ's love for them. This triple prayer wish occurs only here in the New Testament. The Greek word for mercy is ilios, which is the outward manifestation of pity. It assumes there is a need on the part of him who receives it, and it assumes the resources of the one who shows it are adequate to meet those needs. Mercy also appears in the opening greeting in 1st and 2nd Timothy and 2nd John, always against the background of false teaching. It takes the place of grace, which is always first in the Apostle Paul's greetings. Grace is the free and unmerited favor of God bestowed on guilty sinners, while mercy is the compassion that pities the needy and wretched and acts to meet their need. Jude's readers have already experienced God's saving grace, but in view of the dangerous and distressing situation before them, his desire is that amid those distressing circumstances, they may experience God's mercy abundantly and sufficiently. Jude's second blessing for his readers is peace. The Greek word is erine, and it points to the condition of well-being and inner tranquility that comes to those who have been reconciled to God. Jesus comforted the apostles with these words in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. The peace Jesus refers to here is peace with God. Before believers are saved, they are enemies of God, but now they are at peace with him. It is a peace that stems from knowing that their sins are forgiven. This experience is such a life of peace, of such a life of peace is dependent upon a constant trust in Christ and his word. The final blessing in Jude's reader, for Jude's readers is love. And according to one commentary, occurs only here in an opening salutation. It is agape love, an unconditional love. God further blesses believers with constant outpourings of his love. Paul said in Romans 5, 5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. As God's gifts to sinful man, these three divine qualities, mercy, peace, and love, meet the varied needs of God's troubled people. As one writer observes, and I quote, these are not self-acquired Christian virtues, but the gifts of God, which the author prays may be abundantly bestowed upon his readers. Nevertheless, by a divine transformation, the gifts of God are transformed into human characteristics, end quote. These divine blessings will not only give believers comfort, but they will become progressively part of their very character. And then Jude wishes these, bless, these three blessings, mercy, peace, and love, to be multiplied to his readers. Be multiplied in the verb form as plethuno and implies that they already possessed the blessings in a measure, but they were to be increased implicitly to the fullest measure. 
Nothing less than a great outpouring of these gifts on the troubled readers will satisfy Jude's heart. Jude's prayer is that his audience would continually enjoy the Lord's blessing no matter how difficult the spiritual battle might become. Being a child of God includes infinite privilege and spiritual blessing. It's clear that God pours out his abundant blessings on those whom he calls, whom he loves, and whom he keeps. But with those blessings comes great responsibility, a serious subject to which Jude now turns. And so we'll look at verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. By his use of the term beloved, Jude is displaying his sincere pastoral concern for his readers. That, that concern was not a shallow form of sentimentalism, but a heartfelt expression of affection for God's people. And the love he feels for them is the motive behind his ministry to them. It is the central theme of the Christian life, indicating the love of Jude for his brethren, and at the same time, indicating, more importantly, the love of God in Christ for all. It is true, it is the true bond of Christian fellowship. Verse 3 also offers a further glimpse of Jude's personal relationship with his readers. He had them in his thoughts, and he assures them he would have written even if he had not heard of the immediate danger threatening them. He had, in fact, been giving all diligence to write to them on a different subject. The phrase, giving all diligence, or as the NASB renders it, making every effort, portrays Jude as earnestly and aggressively occupied with a project that involved his readers. His total interest and effort was involved. His plan was to, to write concerning our common salvation. Common here is koine, which does not have the sense of inferior, but rather describes that which God's true people everywhere share. God's common salvation is not common of all people, but all of his people, of his whole body, the church, and every member of it, and of all sorts of men in all nations. It's not common to all men because all men are not saved by it, but it's common to all the elect of God and true believers in Christ. The love of God is common to them all alike. The choice of them to eternal salvation is the same. The covenant of grace, the blessings and promises of it are equally shared by them and they are bought with the same price of Christ's blood and are justified by the same righteousness and are regenerated, sanctified, and called by the same grace and will possess the same glory. There is but one way of salvation, but that very salvation was under assault by apostates, hence Jude's change of subjects. He felt that it was necessary to write, meaning he felt a heavy burden. He could not simply watch in silence as his readers slipped into error. His passion for sound doctrine, especially regarding the gospel, made even the thought of false teaching a heavy burden on his heart. And he and his readers would not be able to share a common salvation if they lost the gospel. Jude felt 
the need then to exhort his readers to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Exhort in the Greek is parakaleo, and means appealing to or encourage, and indicates the character and tone as well as the contents of his letter. Jude knew that his readers were already on the right side, but he felt it necessary to urge them to take a firm stand against the, the danger facing them. He urged his readers to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered unto the saints. The Greek word for contend earnestly is epigonizomai, <clears throat> and stresses the need to defend the truth continually and vigorously. The faith for which believers are earnestly to contend is the message of the gospel. That body of Christian truth that brings salvation to the soul that receives it. It is what Luke wrote about in Acts chapter 2 verse 42 noting that the early believers were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching which was the gospel. In life and ministry God's truth is paramount. To manipulate and distort that truth or to mix it with error is to invite God's eternal wrath. That's why Paul told the Galatians, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Jude further defines the faith in, in specific terms as that which was once for all handed down to the saints once for all, which refers to something that is accomplished are completed one time with lasting results and no need of repetition. Through the Holy Spirit, God revealed the Christian faith to the apostles and their associates in the first century. Their New Testament writings in, conjunct in conjunction with the Old Testament scriptures make up the true knowledge of Jesus Christ and are all that believers need for life and godliness. The authors of the New Testament did not discover the truths of the Christian faith through mystical religious experiences. Rather, God, with finality and certainty, delivered his complete body of revelation in Scripture. Any system that claims new revelation or new doctrine must be disregarded as false. God's word is all-sufficient. It is all that believers need as they contend for the faith and oppose apostasy within the church. And that brings us to verse 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Sound doctrine is under siege. In fact, it always has been. The attack on truth is as old as human history. It began in the Garden of Eden when Satan twisted God's word and convinced Eve to disobey her creator. Ever since, the father of lies has tirelessly continued his bitter offensive against divine truth. His goal is simple, to resist the advancement of God's kingdom at any cost. Jude certainly understood what was at stake. He knew that the church was being infiltrated by its enemies. He recognized that a battle was brewing, 
a conflict that marked Satan's newest campaign in his long war against the truth. And that's why Jude wrote this letter, to alert his readers to the doctrinal dangers they faced from Satan's covert agents. Although Jude's description of the apostates as certain persons is vague, his readers knew who the apostates were and what they taught. Therefore, he warned them to be on their guard. In the same way, modern Christians must also be aware that similar heretics still, still threaten the church today. Jude's warning was not merely hypothetical. The false teachers were already present, crept in unnoticed, appears only here in the New Testament. It has the connotation of slipping in secretly with an evil intention. Having already permeated the church, the apostates, according to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, were in position to secretly introduce destructive heresies. To be sure, there are many false teachers outside the church who propagate lies and deceptions and openly proclaim their opposition to Christianity. However, the counterfeit pastors, elders, deacons, and teachers within the church are usually far more dangerous. Attacks from outside the church often unite God's people, but attacks from inside, coming from the false teachers, usually divide and confuse the flock. These teachers creep in on notice, infiltrating the fabric of the church and orchestrating as much harm as possible. As a result, genuine fellowship, worship, ministry, and evangelism fade away as the church succumbs to devastating errors in both doctrine and practice. The New Testament repeatedly warns of the danger posed by apostasy within the church. In today's church, such apostasy takes many forms. False teachers write books and edit publications, speak on radio and television, teach in colleges and seminaries, preach from pulpits, and have websites on the internet. Let's go one more time to the Word. Please turn with me to Matthew chapters 13, and we'll look at verses 24 through 30. Last time, I promise. Chapter 13, verses 24 through 30. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Satan always sows his tares among the wheat raising up false brethren whom he disguises as messengers of truth. The tares that Satan sows have long ago been marked out for this condemnation, <clears throat> which suggests that long ago God pronounced damnation against all apostates. 
They are sons of wrath, whom he has ordained for this prophesied condemnation. The Old Testament prophets made many predictions concerning the judgment of apostates. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 20 through 22 says, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. They will pass through it hard-pressed and hungry, and it shall, it shall happen when they are hungry that they will be enraged and curse their king and their God and look upward. Then they will look to the earth and see trouble and darkness, gloom of anguish, and they will be driven into darkness. They are ungodly persons. False teachers could not worship God properly. In fact, they were and are devoid of any and all reverence for him. Such people only play at religion while possessing no genuine fear of God or love for him. Although they claim to be spiritual leaders, in reality they betray trust in shockingly immoral and unethical ways. They all claim to know and speak truthfully of God, Jesus, and Scripture, but their sinful character undermines that claim. And so they turned the grace of our God into lewdness. The false spirit, spirituality of the apostates could not restrain their fleshly, lust, their fleshly lusts. They perverted God's grace and changed it to lewdness, which is basically sensuality, indecency, and unrestrained vice. The false teachers secretly indulged their fleshly desires. Then, to make matters worse, they excused their behavior by claiming to be covered by their perverted concept of grace. In doing that, they demonstrated that they had never actually embraced Christ's salvation at all. If they had truly tasted divine forgiveness, they would not have used grace as a license for sin. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And so they deny the only Lord Jesus Christ. Apostate false teachers view themselves as their own masters. Therefore, they refused to honestly acknowledge the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. They will not submit to Jesus as divine master, sovereign ruler, and lord, nor will they give him the honor he requires as God the Son and the Savior of sinners. Therefore, they deny Christ his rightful position as God, as King, and as Messiah. In doing that, they confirm that they are counterfeit. Titus chapter 1, verse 16 says, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And that brings us to verses 5 through 7. <clears throat> but I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He has reserved an ever, everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having, been, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. 
In these verses, Jude provides further insight into the apostate's condemnation by citing three of God's past judgments against other apostates, namely apostates, apostate Israelites, apostate angels, and apostate Gentiles. Jude's references to these Old Testament examples are brief and general because they are already familiar to his readers. But he had a desire to remind his readers that defectors from the truth will always meet divine judgment. His first example centered on God's saving a people named Israel, namely Israel, out of the land of Egypt and then leading them through the wilderness. The story of Exodus was a powerful illustration of God's love for his people and a clear picture of redemption. But it was also a stern reminder of divine judgment, not only on the Egyptians, but also on those Israelites who faithlessly turned away from God. Although Jude knew that his readers were fully aware of the story, for he wrote, though you once knew this, he used it to reveal God's unchanging attitude toward anyone in any time or place who corrupts his word. The story details the time when God led his people to the border of the land of Canaan, the promised land. Moses sent 12 men into the land to scout it out. Out of the 12, only two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, came back with favorable reports. The other 10 let their fear take them over, and they spread that fear among all the people, thereby inciting a rebellion against God. Numbers chapter 14, verses 26 through 29, summarizes Israel's rebellion and God's response. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complains against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in the wilderness. All of you who are numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above. For Jews' readers, Israel's judgment was a vivid reminder of what happens to those who, whether they become teachers or not, fail to believe. The second example that Jude gave was that of apostate angels. The fact that these angels are not specifically identified indicates that Jude assumed his audience was already familiar with the details of their extraordinary defection. There are multiple views as to the identity of these angels. The most plausible viewpoint is that Jude referred to an extraordinarily heinous infraction of some of the fallen angels. Genesis chapter 6 verse 4 says, There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. The most practical interpretation of that verse is that the sons of God were the fallen angels. 2 Peter chapter 2 expounds on that event very clearly. The sin of intermingling with the daughters of men was so severe that God placed the offending demons in chains to prevent them from committing such perversity ever again, as 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 states. Somewhat like the perverted angels before them, the Sodomites, in a similar manner to these, gave themselves over to sexual immorality and went after strange flesh. 
They too perverted God's intended design for them by soliciting sexual favors from his holy messengers. Sexual immorality translates a compound word, ekpornuio, which suggests that their attempted homosexual behavior was especially deviant from the God-ordained design for human sexuality. That they went after strange flesh indicates that, like the apostate angels, the men of Sodom pursued creatures outside of what was proper for them. For more insight into this, you can refer back to 2 Peter chapter 2 again. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah are set forth as an example that God will certainly and severely punish apostates. They will finally be sentenced to the ven vengeance of eternal fire, the burning hell of horrific torment, where punishment lasts forever. It is God's final permanent judgment on the unregenerate, especially on those who scorn his truth or defect from it. The Apostle John describes hell this way in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This powerful passage with its three dramatic illustrations of apostasy is a sobering reminder of the ultimate fate that waits those who defect from the faith. As such, it provides a powerful motivation for believers as they continue to contend for the truth. And it also serves as a solemn warning to anyone who, knowing the truth, for whatever reason, is inclined to walk away from the gospel. After all, if Jude's warning is ignored, the consequences are terrifying. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 29 through 31 says this, How much worse punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Therefore, the severest eternal suffering will belong to those who know and reject the truth. Even more terrible will judgment be to those who, having done that, go on to de teach demonic lies as if they are true. Well, we have learned what apostasy, apostasy looks like, who the apostates are, and that there are many versions of them. There are many kinds of sinners, but only the repentant, forgiven, believing sinners will not have to face the eternal punishment Jude just described in the previous verses. In the following verses, 8 through 25, we will learn more about these rebels, how they are like the, the apostates Jude described from the Old Testament, more about their doom, how they are, were predicted, and how we can maintain our walk with Jesus in light of these stumbling blocks. But we're going to have to wait for the next time for that. We are out of time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us and keeping us in your son, Jesus. 
We know that as your children, we have assurance of eternal life with you. But for now, we need to navigate the turbulent waters of subtle, false teaching that has crept into your church, mixing in with your truth. Help us to stand strong in your word and run the race, keeping our eyes on Jesus until the day he comes to take us home. We pray this in his powerful name. Amen.